Hello and welcome back to Craft Truck Podcast. My name is Jesse Eichmann and you are listening to our regular podcast series with editors, cinematographers, producers, directors, writers, and all the craftspeople that you love in film and television. Today we are with a producer, uh, actually I should say producers, uh, from Before the Door Pictures, which is a partnership uh, between Neil Dodson, Corey, Musso, uh, Corey Musa, and Zachary Quinto. Uh, their most recent film, All is Lost, is coming out in theaters, well, this week. Uh, and they're also the, the producers of Margin Call. I was lucky enough to sit down with Neil and Corey in their L.A. office. Uh, this podcast was recorded several months ago, so some of the information, I wouldn't say it's out of, out of date, nothing is out of date, but you'll hear some numbers and some really in-depth information about Margin Call, uh, which has since changed, but nonetheless, some pretty interesting stuff. Um, these guys are amazing producers, so enjoy this podcast. Again, there's no video attached to this podcast. This is a podcast version only, uh, so you can only catch it here. Um, thanks, Neil. Thanks, Corey, for doing this podcast uh, with us. And uh, to all our listeners, uh, if you haven't already, please go to crafttruck.com, uh, subscribe to our newsletter so you can get all the latest updates. And just so you know, uh, check out our new series, Meet Your Makers, which is now live, season one. And In the Cut, coming out later this month, uh, will also be going up on our site. So uh, In the Cut is with editors. So enjoy all, and um, here, here you go with uh, Corey and Neil. So, who are you and what do you do? My name is Neil Dodson. I'm a producer and a partner at Before the Door Pictures. Uh, I am Corey Musa. I'm a producer and a partner at Before the Door Pictures as well. Oh, so here we are with Corey and Neil, Before the Door Pictures. So you guys started your company how long ago? Four and a half years ago, so... A little over that. It was July. Our fifth anniversary this July. Yeah. That's a pretty good five years. Taking a look at the, the movies that you've done thus far. Yeah, we've made four movies in four and a half years. We'll think we'll make another one or be shooting another one at least before the five-year mark comes. Um, and we've sold a couple pilots and we've made some graphic novels and set up a bunch of other movies and a bunch of other deals and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, we, we're pretty proud of it. <laughs> yeah, five movies. We made five movies. Four yeah. movies. And how did you guys meet? Did you did you originally from the same school or Corey and I met in college at Carnegie Mellon at drama school, um, where we also went to drama school with our third partner Zach Quinto, um, who's also an actor. Um, and uh, I had met him prior in high school in a summer acting program. Um, we were all actors at the time, and um, yeah, and then we all went to college together, and then we all went off on our own careers, all in various different places as actors. I was in New York, and then in Los Angeles, Corey was in New York for a long time, and then in Los Angeles, Zach was in L.A. for most of it, but in New York for some of it, and then um, we all found ourselves in L.A. at the same time. And Around the time that Star Trek was uh, uh, shooting. happening, shooting, yeah, it was about the time that we decided it was the right time to put this company together due to the work that Neil had been doing for the past few years at Warner Brothers under Dylan, I had been Dylan working, Sellers. I had been working at Warner Brothers for a couple of years for a producer there, and I'd made a movie there, and... Um, had uh, you know learned a bit of what to do and a bit of what not to do from the studio system and um, had you developed doing, a lot of stuff. Were you doing a reading? I, I, I noticed on the IMDb page. I wanted to ask this. I was kind of curious. As you were a casting reader on The Matrix, is that is that true? Uh, that, that is true. Yes, that <laughs> is true. <laughs> what is that? when I was an actor, I was originally for a very famous casting director who's now passed away, um, uh, named Mally Finn, who was a really amazing lady and a really talented sort of 
creative casting director who did tiny little indie movies, but she also did like the Terminator and you know huge films. And so I was a reader for her for uh, a bunch of different projects, but I spent like three days in a hotel room in New York with her uh, auditioning people for Matrix Two and Matrix Three and Constantine, which was called Hellblazer at the time. I think is the name of the comic book. Am I wrong? Hellblazer, I think. I don't know. Corey generally knows those things. That's I a stumper. That's I'm weird. Sorry. Um, anyway, yeah, so I spent all day uh, for a couple days with her and um, and uh, the producer of Hellblazer, who was Lauren Schuler Donner, um, in a room. And um, and we did, in the Matrix, we were recasting Aaliyah had died, and she was supposed to be in Matrix 2 and 3. And the woman who played the Oracle in the first Matrix had died, whose name I can't remember, which is sad. And we were recasting that role. And so we were basically casting these old women, one of whom ended up playing the Oracle in the second and third one. And then we were recasting, and they were trying to honor Aaliyah by interviewing uh, rappers and hip-hop artists. So that my days were filled with, we read with Lil' Kim before she went to jail. We read with Maya. We read with Jill Scott. We read with Erica Badu. We read with... I can't remember even who else. It was a bunch of people. Um, it ended up being, I want to say it was Marvin Gaye's daughter, Nona Gaye, I think, ended up playing the role. Pretty sure that's who it right. was. Right. At any rate, um, yeah, so that is that is that is true. I did it, did it meet your expectations when the film came out? I think I, yeah, yes, definitely. I think I was paid, yeah. <laughs> it was like 50 bucks a day to get to hang out and get some advice from a really great casting director and meet all these great actors. And my wife, actually, who was not my wife at the time, and I didn't even know at the time, actually auditioned for Constantine with me. Um... In that same room. Did you give it a roll? Figured it out. Yeah, no. Not Did you give it a roll? Totally not. She was terrible. She was great. Um, but we met years later and just figured it out through some weird stories. At any rate. Short films. I noticed there's a couple short films on both your resumes. Um, I now have a lot of short films on our resumes. Yeah. Yeah. Many, many short films. And I am curious because I was talking to somebody just the other day and we were talking about the value of doing a short film. Uh, come Once you're out of school versus when you're in school. And just... Having now done a few short films in your career, um, what's your perspective on doing shorts as part of as part of the whole, you know, growing one's career? I think for short films it's changed a lot. I mean, the first short film that Corey and I ever worked on was a short film called Chinese Dream, which was about ten, almost fifteen years ago, um, mm-hmm. or ten years ago, I guess, um, in New York. And the purpose of that short film was that that filmmaker was someone that we knew we wanted to support, and he needed to have a work sample and wanted to shoot on film and had a great story to tell and we made that short and then it went all over the world to film festivals and got him some attention and it's now a great work sample still to this day it's a great way to show off what he does as a director but I think that what short films do I mean I think that's still true I think people still do that but generally I think what they do now is changed a lot because of the internet because there's this place for them to be seen it's a different platform now where at, at before it just would make the festival circuit and and now kind of it, disappear after that yeah it would go away if you were lucky maybe an airline would buy rides to your short with a series of other shorts and they'd show it on the plane or something on pbs but um now you can just self-distribute that content as much or as little as you want to but we've worked with a lot of first-time writer directors over the five years that our company's been open and there's really no way that we would have been able to have made things work if each of them didn't have a short film, a sample of their work that we could use as a tool, essentially, to to sell them around town. That's true. J.C. Chandor, who directed Margin Call and All Is Lost, or the next movie that we're putting out in the fall, had a short film that had started... Somebody's calling for us. 
started Will Arnett. Um, and, There's uh, a long tradition of answering phone calls. In the I'm sure in the moment. So if you sure should not, need to answer that. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, someone out there will let us know if we need to uh, talk on it. Um, but yeah, he had a short film that had Will Arnett in it that was really sort of a quiet, meditative short film that it was just great to be able to say to people, like, what has he directed before? Here it is. Here's a link. You can watch his short film. And it had, like, a famous person in it, and it showed that he knew how to tell a story and move the camera. Um, it wasn't particularly applicable to Margin Call, but um, it was nice to be able to say, here's something he's done. And the same is true for this movie we're working on putting together now. And um, So anyway, yeah, I think it works really well like that. I think the other way that it works... Um, now, particularly because the cost of shooting, depending on if you're good at it, the cost of shooting and cutting and putting together a short can or can be very low. Um, is that you know we made a series of short films, some of which we've been more actively involved in, and some of which we've really just sort of helped them promote and helped support them um, with this whole team that calls themselves Periods Films, and um, we then made a feature, produced their first feature, and it wasn't didn't come directly from the short films, but the style and the energy, etc., was from, and instead of them having one short film that was very precious and sort of like, here's my sample, do you like me, they had 10, or 15 almost by the time that we had done that, all of which sort of had the same style, same energy, showed they were all funny when this was a comedy, and so um, it worked really well for that, and they've built an online fan base and an audience based on putting out a short film every, you know, two months. Um, so I think, there's a, I think it's changing and growing what it is. And a day and age when you can essentially, uh, like, reduce the cost by, what, 75% of what it used to be or even more, there's no reason now that you actually don't want to be making short films if you don't have a larger body of work all the time. Right. Yeah, it's almost kind of one of those things where you're like, if someone doesn't have one, that's weirder. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because <laughs> the cost to enter the barrier to entry is so low to doing that, it's sort of like, why haven't you shot something would be the first question. Yeah. When you guys came together, what was the first... I, I, was Martin called the first script that you actively tried to put together, or was that just the first, obviously? No, we had two prior to that, one of which we, was a play that we tried to option. Mm-hmm. Um, we read a lot of material searching for the diamond in the rough, but um, we had another script that we actually optioned and set up with Christine Rashawn exactly. called Imperial Palace, and it's and it's actually a filmmaker who we've now made a film with. Um, it's his script and his film to direct, and we will make it someday. It just sort of wasn't the right time to make it. Um, it's a challenging movie in, uh, in certain ways, and we're and we basically came to the conclusion that the best way to make that movie was to go make another one or a movie or two with this guy first so that then we could be like, and we and now he wants to make this. But um, other than that, those were really the only... And we had a couple other things that we danced around about. We had things that we were, we were trying to put together. We had other things in motion, like the comic book section of our company, um, two different stories that we had worked and on. TV pilots and... TV pilots. All of things. But, uh, but it was the first movie that we ever read and called each other like, this is it. Like this is we literally, quite literally had that conversation. It sounds melodramatic. It was like this is it. This is the movie we need to make. This should be our first movie. This is the perfect first movie for us. And like, Marginal. yeah, we yeah. should just do anything we can to make this happen. We should not give up until this is made. And that is really, literally that was what Zach and Corey and I all felt at the time. Now, because there's been so much written about this this movie, it's been hailed as sort of the you know the the, the movie that broke the mold in terms of the way movies should be distributed. It obviously did very successful. Um, I remember uh, I was very lucky to be in the audience in Sundance, seeing the premiere. I remember one of the one of the cast members said, and I, I shall not say it on this podcast, but said they'll be lucky if anybody ever sees this movie. Right. I remember someone said that, of course. And, and of course, nobody knew at the time. It was just it was it was an, it was an indie movie that just happened to be a breakout success. 
But now that the dust has settled with the movie, I think what's really interesting, the question that is on, certainly on my mind, and hopefully, or possibly on the mind of others, is how did the movie do? Like, just from an economic point of view, how, I mean, what can you tell us about, you know, uh, how much the movie cost to make? Did you make money on the movie? Uh, was it a profitable venture for this company? Um, you know, like, did the movie actually meet the hype? You know, the movie made a lot more money than, than I think any most people that are like encountering it know. Um, you go to IMDb and it says whatever it says. It's inaccurate, but it's, you know, Box Office Mojo, I think, is pretty close to being accurate as to the global revenues. IMDb has the domestic revenues right, but the foreign revenues are totally are off by like eight or nine million dollars, and that's all just theatrical revenue, which doesn't take into account its, its U.S. Success, huge success, groundbreaking success in the VOD market, which people know about, but again, it's like there's no place that sort of aggregates all that and says, like, here's how it did, which is fine. It still looks like a success. That was our biggest concern was, oh my gosh, what if this movie comes out day and date, does $20 million in VOD and does 100 grand in movie theaters? Everybody's like, well, you made a flat movie because it only made 100 grand, when in reality it's a hugely profitable movie. The good news is it came out, it made enough money in theaters in the US and then globally to appear to be a success, which it is, and and also be even more of a success sort of behind the curtains. So, you know, there was $2.9 million in negative cost of actual equity in the movie. There was a 3.4 total budget. The difference between those two was the New York tax credit, which we financed. So we spent three, just under $3.4 million to make the movie. But there was only a guy standing out there with his hands out for $2.9 million. Michael Benaroya, who believed in this movie and fought for the movie and, like, was willing to write a very large check with no guarantee of getting any of it back on first-time producers, first-time filmmaker, adult drama in its real sort of core sense, um, with yeah, with no distribution in place um, at all, you know. And so that was a pretty risky check, but it was still it was two point nine million bucks. So we shot it in seventeen days, and it was really tight, and we pulled it off. But so that movie grossed in the U.S. in theaters five. Four, I think 5.3, 5.4 million bucks. And it grossed during its theatrical run somewhere between, and I have to look at the papers, somewhere between 8 and $10 million while in theaters. Which no one expected. On, on, on the DOD. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's all Lionsgate and roadside attractions. So they did 5.3 plus somewhere between 8 and 10. So even if you go conservative on that, that's $13.5 million in revenue just during its theatrical run, which, by the way, was only six weeks. So it was on DVD eight weeks to the day after the day it came out in theaters. Like, the whole entire window was two months. From theatrical through VOD to DVD. It was literally a two-month period. So, um, so that's a lot of money in a very short amount of time. And that's just the U.S. And then internationally it's done... If you total up the theatrical revenues around the world, it's done $20 million. So that's including the U.S. But So another $15 million overseas. And that's also just theatrical. Um, accounting for how I have no idea how it's sold in DVD or VOD or television around the world. We certainly, the, the investor, we continue to get checks from all these different distributors all over the world that come in through the, the thing and get paid out to who gets them. Um, but uh, but we don't, I don't know the details of that. It would be pretty hard to sort of dig into. Has this changed the way you think about the way you approach movies right now? So when you look at the way you're packaging a movie, having gone through this experience, seeing the revenues that can be generated from these different avenues some of it may be just chalked up to you know I mean every movie is its own thing totally. but has this changed the way you go about 
financing, putting together your movies, thinking about you know the the the, the back, you know how the back end on the movie is going to come in. Has this colored yeah. that at all? Of course, it's, it's, we've got two movies coming out like this too. Yeah, it changed everything for us. I mean, particularly this VOD platform that nobody was really looking at as anything but a death sentence a few years ago has turned into a really really cool venue, a venue where. The right movie can succeed. The right movie can succeed. It's reaching a huge, huge audience. Um, there are really movies that are made for theaters more than there used to be now. What I mean by that is like there are certain films that really should be in a theater, and there are certain films that their their real platform is VOD. It's not a bad thing. It's a really cool thing. Marjorie happened to fall into that category. We didn't even know it when we were shooting it, but it's a movie JC, the filmmaker, who would you would have thought, and he thought would be totally opposed to any kind of release like this, he'll perfectly admit, and when we're trying to you know, have people interested in doing a film with him, he's happy for them to watch Margin Call on a laptop. Like, it's a movie that's actually really intimate, it's a lot of talking, it's not about scope and scale, and it actually plays great on a small screen. It plays great on an airplane. So we have two other films right now that are going to be coming out on that platform, respectively, in June and, and September, October. No theatrical release just on that platform? No, there is going to like be... a minimal theatrical it, release. It, it's, it's, the theatrical release is really... Um, it's part of driving the content on the VOD, and we think it's really, really cool. So yeah, we have these small theatrical components to these two other films that we have coming out. Uh, Break Up at a Wedding is a romantic comedy. Comes out in June. Comes out in June in Banshee Chapter, um, which is a horror movie, um, which will uh, be late September, early October. Um, and then, and then to, to actually to throw it the other mm-hmm. way, we, our, our follow-up with JC is a movie that should be seen in theaters, and I don't even know what the experience on VOD or TV is going to be on you know, small screen is going to be like because it's a huge scope and scale movie with not a lot of dialogue, not a lot of intimate spaces. It's big and it's got a lot of swell and scope. What's that movie called, Neil? That movie's called All Is Lost, Corey. Um, and it stars Robert Redford. But it's a, a movie that doesn't work on that. And therefore, when we made our deal with Lionsgate and with Universal International, etc., that deal does not include a day-and-date VOD component. So that's a theatrical movie that will eventually find its way to those other platforms, as all movies do, for the revenue stream to sort of trickle down. But like that's a movie that shouldn't shouldn't be done that way and I think that's the one danger I don't know if you agree but like the one danger of the like I'm just, just going to step back here guys yeah. I don't know you guys talk to each other because this, this is great <laughs> the holy grail of like VOD is going to be going to save everybody's film business I think is a little dangerous because it's right for some movies and it's not right for some movies and ultimately it's not right for bad movies right, right. so like you still have this content still has to be compelling and um the hope is that if you're making a good film, it will find the right place for it to be released, and that might be VOD, which is great because that wasn't uh, that was a ghettoized release, you know, not too long ago. So, just taking a step back, um, now that you're kind of in the thick of obviously putting out multiple movies in a year, probably you know, hopefully continue to put out uh, a movie or more annually. Your process when you go about packaging a movie, what is it that? Uh, you go through in terms of the steps you go through, how you go about thinking, putting a movie together and financing a movie. So just sort of, you know, walk me through how you guys work internally here. You know, one of the, the first part of this process, which there are many parts to this process. And I think we've learned a lot of different ways to go about things or, or in what order you put things together. But the most important part still remains the same at the beginning of the process, which is, 
we have to find the piece of material that really speaks to each of us in our company, meaning myself, Neil, and Zach. And uh, it has to just be good storytelling. It doesn't have to be a specific genre. It doesn't have to be a specific style. Um, we're just really interested in something that's that's good, compelling storytelling. And because if it isn't, it's just as it's hard to make a good movie. And it's hard to make a bad movie. So you might as well make a movie that you like, or like hard to make a movie that you're passionate about, and hard to make a movie that you're not passionate about. So why not spend that hard energy on something that you love? Because it makes the hard work a little easier to stomach, etc. Right? Like, are you reading scripts just all the time? Just yeah, we take in a lot of material. Um, we could take in more. We're not. We're not like a. That we're lucky enough. Knock on whatever. We're yeah. lucky. We're lucky. I get that on the mic there. Um, we're lucky enough that we've been busy making movies and not busy developing movies, um, which was something that I'm not sure that we thought that was going to be the case. But like once we started going, we've now pretty much been in develop like in like financial raising, packaging, shooting, post financial re- you know release you know on something basically since we started prepping Margin Call. And packaging these products, um, they, they definitely are specific in a lot of ways to to the director. Um, and to what that project is. And price point. Price point being key, of course. It depends on how we're going to approach getting the movie financed, whether that would be through a backstop deal, a private source of equity, um, or if there's some outside-of-the-box thing that we want to do. It it depends on what works best sometimes, not just for uh, the production, but for the director personally and what their relationship might end up being to this, this financing that's coming in. So you're saying that the, the is the director the critical piece for you on the movies that you've traditionally done right now, or of any thus products far, Thus in? far, it has definitely been the, the most important piece. Yeah, we haven't well, actually... It's the most important piece in terms of deciding to do it, and then what the plan is. And then the most important piece of getting the movie finance is ultimately, almost always, not always, going to be cast. We've so far worked on all of our films have been uh, writer-director pieces. Um, we've, we've, we've worked with... That's true. The same person. Um, we haven't had a deal yet where we've actually found a piece of material first. Where we found a piece of material first and then gone out to, uh, to to seek a director, the right director for that project. And it's something that we're excited to do. Well, we have that. We have a thing at Warner Brothers now that will be that process because it was a comic book, graphic novel that Corey made and developed here at the company that we published, and then with a writer of ours, but a writer who's not going to write the screenplay. So now Warner Brothers is hiring a writer to write the screenplay. And then with our us being involved and Akiva Goldsman's and his company and, and another company called Safe House are producing with us. We wrote. Um, and then... Uh, Akiva's company rewrote it or he's rewrote yeah, it? Uh, Weed Road. Weed Road. Road I didn't say Weed Road. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Weed Road. Yeah, but Akiva's been great and he really loved the book <laughs> and thought that there was something really cool about it and we sold it with him to Warner Brothers. And so... Um, so they're going to hire this writer that we all sort of met and he put together a pitch based on the material that we all liked and we took to Warner Brothers and then eventually there'll be a director hire that'll be made at a later point. What's been the worst financing situation that you guys have been in and or has there been one where you've been trying to package a movie you've had a piece of financing that existed fell out let's just a, a war story if you will. Um, without saying what movie it was Although we've only made four, so it makes the math reasonably easy. We had a movie, well, there was a movie that used to be on the wall right there that got erased, but we won't, we have a chalkboard on our wall here that we put up projects, and there's 
two projects in the wall there was a third one up there um, that got erased but um, that was a long process and we won't even go into that because it's way too specific and like not interesting but um, one of the movies that we've made um, definitely had a financier who was going to pay for the whole movie involved that we went very far down the road with to the point at which we were basically spending our money in prep to prep the movie knowing that they were coming through and like at the last the con- the sort of long form as it were that they presented to close the financing deal had all kinds of crazy things in it that had nothing to do with anything we'd ever previously discussed or um, and this was a long wooing process of a fairly non-traditional film investor which was a great lesson for us um, because sometimes non-traditional film investors meaning like somebody who's not produced movies before or whatever um, or just like a friend or a family or whatever it is sometimes they're very easy because they will sort of allow you to set the template and we don't treat any of them as if we're just trying to like get their money because we want to be responsible and get to keep doing this but um, but sometimes it's very easy because they don't know a lot so they just sort of say I don't know how's this done that's great if you're dealing with honest producers because they're going to put you in a deal that's totally fair to you but also keeps it simple um, if you're dealing with someone who's a non-traditional film investor who thinks they know how film finance works or thinks that they can apply whatever other business that they work in to the notion of film finance or film legal, it's like a total it's, it's the It's the killer. It's the one that like you might think this is your best option. Oh, I'm going to go get this movie made. This guy's or girl is so excited. They're going to put all this money in. They've never made a film before. They just want to get invested in it. And then they bring their real estate lawyer with them to a meeting, and you start going through things, and it's like it takes so much explanation in terms of why do we do things one way opposed to another that... Which we're happy to do, but ultimately the explanation, Corey and I went through this in this particular project where like a lot of the explanation kept going, and the, their questions at the end just kept making it clear and clear that they didn't understand the business that they were about to step into, right? So like, film is a business that has no collateral, really, right? So you're, you're, the reason why you're well rewarded for your investment in a film investment is that if the whole thing it's turns out terribly, it's very high risk, right? So you have to, the, the goal in being a, a conservative, if you want to call it that, film investor would be to just pick really well. Like that's your only protection, right? Is you pick the projects well, you pick the people that you're working with well, and you've researched them and make sure that they're honest people who have done right by other people they've worked for, and then ultimately you have to go with your bet and take a bet. Um, and any, somebody who works in real estate, for instance, I'm not saying that's where this person's business was, but someone who might work in real estate looks at a something they consider investing in, and they're like, well, if this goes to hell in a handbasket, I still own that building, or I still own the rights to build there, or whatever it is. So there's there's an asset to it. And in a film, like it goes up in flames, and an actor gets hurt or drops out last minute or whatever, and you've spent $2 million. So $2 million is, at best, written against some possible future version of the movie and at worst it's just gone you know and so uh, we've had we had one of those where we then with very little time about two weeks had to scramble and replace all of that money part of it came through Zach making a sort of miracle call to someone who was willing to help us out who saw my name was and the other half came through sort of a friends and family source which came in like an angel in the last minute and suddenly we had the movie back together again and those deals closed in about four days because there was no other choice, and because everyone involved totally understood what they were getting into. Um, so I actually think film finance legal should be pretty simple. Um, and um, sometimes it gets way more complicated. Which is an interesting place to kind of go next with this, which is the idea of uh, a first-time filmmaker or producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, in, in, in this case, the purpose of this conversation. 
is trying to put their first movie together. You guys have been through The Ringer now several times. Uh, what is some advice that you would give to, you know, somebody who's willing to, or, you know, step to the plate and try and put their first movie together? What, 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 what would you advise, Corey? <laughs> I would say to any um, aspiring uh, writer-director uh, that you need to... Or, or, or producer, doesn't have to be a writer-director. Producer, yeah. um, anyone... Uh, Trying to make their first movie. Keep your eye on the bigger picture. Don't get don't get too too focused on any one particular thing because each one of these things kind of connect to another and and they'll all change a hundred times. They're going to change a hundred times. You of course have to be ready to um, to just adjust to things as they happen. I feel quickly. like finding a good mentor is key. Yeah, having somebody, (laughs) you know what, having somebody to ask questions to and to get answers from, it's so important. And it's so important that whoever this person is, this first time person understands how to ask questions. Never assume that you know everything. Um, Don't lie about knowing everything. Like if you don't know something, ask questions and then everybody stays happy and you can actually figure out how to solve problems that are at foot. But I find that a lot of people just don't ask questions and boy, that gets, that gets bad really quick. And what was your worst day on set? Uh, and if you guys remember, what, what, what would be the worst day on set that you can remember and, and, and how did you go about fixing whatever it is that, that went wrong on that day? I have to just pick one. No, you can pick 20 if you want, but I don't think we're trying for 20. Let's see. What's a good example? Pick any. <laughs> um, you know, finding out uh, finding out a day before that you've lost a location, um, like that I had happen. Like we 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 did not end up getting permission to shoot at a place that we were all ready to shoot at. Everybody thought the paperwork was in place, and it wasn't. And we had to steal a bunch of shots then. Like, I, I had permission. I was in this condemned, like, abandoned um, apartment complex. And we totally had permission to be shooting outside in the complex, but we wanted to be shooting inside in these kind of empty, abandoned places that were not really safe for people to be inside of. And we did not have permission to do it. So, so you lied, cheated, and steal? Lied, cheated, and stole and got the shot? Basically, yes. Sounds like filmmaking to me. It was good. That was good. I mean, there were more traumatic things. There were like rattlesnakes that I've I've dealt with. That's that's fairly traumatic. But that movie was pretty dramatic. The desert is a dramatic place. The desert is a dramatic place. We we all is lost, which is a water movie. Um, we dealt with a lot of things that could have gone horribly wrong. That like by the skin of their teeth didn't. We had a boat take on water, as they say, uh, that wasn't supposed to. Um, we had. Uh, a bunch of divers and cameramen in the water with 60 sharks swirling around them, which was on purpose, but also could have gotten nasty pretty quickly. And um, we definitely, st- the biggest stolen shot I've ever been a part of was on, the, was on that movie, which was we needed to steal shots of a, an oil tanker. And we shot off, we shot in the harbor, uh, Long Beach and Los Angeles Harbor. Um, and we had a, t- basically a tugboat with 35 crew members and a 50-foot techno crane and a small video village and all this stuff on it at night with permission to be on the boat, I think, with a camera, but not permission to be 
going around and filming other things we were filming. So we were basically stealing shots of these oil tankers that didn't know we were filming them. Um, and we would just keep going past them to get our shot because our shot was passing them. So we would keep going past them and then circle back around and go past them and circle back around and go past them. And I asked the boat captain at one point, and we were sort of like, okay, do we have it? Okay, we, can we go back in? Because it was, we could have gotten in big trouble. And I asked him at some point, I said, is there, like, this shouldn't be allowed. Like, what we're doing right now seems like someone should be monitoring it. And what he said was uh, that there's a, they have some sort of port radar so someone is watching a screen somewhere and seeing a boat continue to circle an oil tanker. And if they came out to look at it, of course, it has what looks like a 50-foot missile on the back <laughs> of it. And a bunch of guys in, like, black outfits with, like, gear and pointing laser sights at things and stuff. It could have gotten really ugly really fast. So we sort of, shortly thereafter, we decided we had, in fact, gotten the shot and got out of there. Well, but, uh, is, is it a shot that we're going to see in the movie? It's in the movie, yeah. It's in the movie. Yeah. Um, With the oil movie. tanker's name well, blacked out? Uh, yes, exactly. A little, <laughs> little computer VFX goes a long way. I got one for you. Do, do you know what a puke rig is? A puke rig? A puke rig. No, no From one. The Exorcist. <laughs> no, but I'd like to, I'd like to hear what this is, actually, because I have no idea. This was, this was on uh, the horror movie Banshee chapter. This was a brilliant day. Um, there is a scene in the movie where we basically have a young woman, you know, vomiting out her insides, essentially. And we got what's known as a puke rig, which is essentially a tube that uh, we put a bunch of raw meat and gross things and assorted crap into this machine, all ground up, that basically sucks it out like a, a pump, like a vacuum, and then just blows it out. And we had it set up so it was blowing it out through a green screen, and we were going to capture all of this, and like then we were going to impo- superimpose the image of the woman on top of this. And we get all set up to do it. Everybody's very excited, uh, and uh, everybody's standing around the camera um, waiting to watch this happen. There's like easily 75 people standing around ready to watch this as we do it. And basically, roll action. They press the button, and the damn thing explodes. Um, it totally backfired. It exploded specifically on the director and on me and no one else. And we were just standing there all of a sudden, completely covered in fucking dead animal guts, flesh all over us. Totally didn't get the shot. Let's um, see, had you got the shot, then it would have been worth it. But without the shot, yeah. Uh, yeah. Then it was just like <laughs> covered in crap. I was just covered in meat, and I was not happy. I got kind of upset, walked, went, took <laughs> off my clothes, and walked away. The director thought it was hysterical. <laughs> and the footage exists somewhere. The, the footage does. I hope it ends up in 3D on the EPK. <laughs> it was always being shot in 3D. Yeah, that's that true. Amazing. That's true. <laughs> so your next movie uh, coming. So you, you you actually have a number of movies coming out now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Breaking by the Wedding comes out June eighteenth. Uh, we don't have an exact date, but the Banshee chapter comes out in late September and early October. And then All Is Lost looks like it's going to be released October twenty fifth. Um, we don't know where that'll premiere. It'll be some uh, festival somewhere between May and September. We'll see. And then. Um, we, uh, yeah, so that'll come out October 25th from Lionsgate and Universal Sandling, uh, the international side. But those are all made entirely independently. Like, that's, you know, how we like to make them if we can. Um, and then we're trying to put together a couple movies right now. Um, we have a couple really exciting things co- that we can't talk about that are coming out for the summer. Um, 
It's so exciting. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's so good. We just can't talk about it right now. No, it's true. That's we haven't closed, closed our deal yet. We haven't closed our deal yet. But, um, and then we have a movie called You Were Never Here that we're working on putting together that looks like it's going to come together for this summer as well, which would be really exciting. Um, and then uh, with another first-time writer-director. Um, it seems to be a theme for you guys. Yeah, we like it. Well, the only, the only movie we've made that wasn't the first-time writer-director was All Is Lost, which was JC's second movie because we'd made his first, so it was... We are working on follow-up projects right now with all, all of our the directors we that we've, all the first-time directors that we've worked with. Yeah. As the way you go about approaching, I mean, now you you guys are sort of on a, on a run, which 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 is great. But has the way you've approached financing these upcoming movies and the movies that you're developing and continuing to put together? Um, going back to what you had said earlier, Neil, about you've been in this cycle of. Uh, Packaging, financing, and then production. We talked about the packaging side. Can you talk a little about about the financing side of how you go about putting together your your movie? Yeah. What, are the, what are the components that are I think it's, in your movies? How do you go about you know that? Yeah, process? I think what we try and do is we try and put the right. And these pieces, it's all been writer directors, so we just are trying to find the right piece of material with the right director attached. And in the case of doing a movie with a filmmaker we've worked with before, obviously it's a lot about what do you want to do next and what is their excitement about it and as long as we're excited about it which so far we have been um, we're hoping that they'll let us stick around for the next one because that's one of the reasons you do someone's first film is you want to form a relationship and hopefully you love them enough to keep going back into battle so uh, for a first film I think the process is generally really actor based you're hoping the material will grab actors and I mean the process is always that to a certain extent but um, and then you want to find uh, unless you have some direct source of some sort that you're going to reach out to directly, we generally put a finder of some sort on our movies. Um, we work a lot with Cassian Owes, who's a, a sort of legend of the independent film world, and, and he helped us put Martin Hill together, and he helped us put All His Lost together, and he helped us sell Break Up at a Wedding, our wedding movie, and he also um, is helping us put together the, the You Will Never Hear This movie we're working on soon. Um, uh, and he works with a guy named Rob Barnum a lot, who's also, we've worked with a couple times and we really like. And then uh, we've worked. We're working on another movie with Kevin Iwashina, who's another guy like that on a movie called You Don't Love Me Yet. Um, and CAA are our agents, and, and we uh, work with them as well. That's so. their whole team there. We've worked with Ben Kramer, Mike Green, Laura Walker, Laura yeah. Lewis. But in Nick the case O'Shea. of our first four movies, Margin Call was put together. Uh, Cassian always Laura Rister. Um, the two of them, uh, who she's an untitled who manages Zach as well, um, they helped us find the money for that movie by putting us in the room with financiers, putting our director in the room with financiers, and helping us cobble together a cast who was willing to work on a movie with their vouch being a part of the equation. Um, and then eventually it came together after having met a bunch of people, you know, they were kissing a lot of toads until you get to the... the Frog that turns into the prince is that that makes yeah. metaphors probably yes. um, it's a metaphor of some sort it's a metaphor of some sort um, the wedding movie we did not put together with a finder but again Cassian helped us sell the movie to a distributor when it was done um, was that done as a negative pickup then so you it was self financed yeah. that movie oh, we didn't we haven't financed anything we don't have the money to finance anything I wish we did um, no but we that's that's a movie that we put together through some independent financing. Uh, but it was it was a private equity private equity yeah, it was okay. an equity equity play and then um, an anonymous content was involved with that we brought them on Steve Golan who's a, a great amazing producer and runs a great business he came on and helped us with that as well uh, and then yes we sold it to a distributor after the film was finished um, same was true with the Banshee chapter which is Corey's horror movie uh, which was financed for some money uh, from Europe um, that came to us with a producer attached and came to us with 
uh, a financial structure starting to be in place, and then Corey and Sean in particular came on to uh, to get it across the finish line because they made a movie before and really wanted to you know make this movie, and they did a great job with it. And all this lost, we financed um, differently, so we financed that as a bank financing deal. Preface this, if you can finance your movies the way Neil is about to explain right now, <laughs> on all of them, yeah. this is the way to do it. But it's pretty, it's pretty hard to do, and we were pretty lucky. But basically what we did on All Is Lost is JC wrote a script, we attached a very famous actor named Robert Redford, and he was coming off of, it was, we were literally doing this as he was nominated for an Oscar and hadn't lost yet, <laughs> which he is the joke that he makes. He's like, there was like a two-week window where this was perfect. Um, so if you're an Oscar-nominated writer-director, yeah. take advantage of that yes, window exactly. and go get your movie fine. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a little, we were, we were unfairly stacked, but for an independent film, there are opportunities for this to happen. So if you have a great piece of cast, this can also happen without the Oscar nomination, etc. So if you have a great piece of material and you're able to get a piece of cast who makes the movie worth X, or presumably worth X, to distributors, and you can set it up so that those distributors are willing to say that in advance before you've made the film. So in this case, Lionsgate was willing to say that the domestic rights to All Is Lost were worth X. I won't tell you what mm-hmm. X is. Um, and that Universal Pictures, through a foreign sales agent, was willing to say that the rights to 70 territories that they wanted to buy were worth Y. And there were a few of the distributors who were willing to say that their territories were worth Z. And X plus Y plus Z equals more than you need to shoot your movie. Then you take all those contracts, a contract with Lionsgate for domestic, a contract, you know, so you close the contract, but they don't send you any money. And you take those contracts to a bank, which we had the help of some very great friends in Canada who helped us put together. I love those Canadians. The Seven Storm guys, they're amazing. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Um, And uh, they were... Don't trust Canadians. (laughs) Uh, They helped us put together the bank financing and bank structure, but we basically were able to borrow every dollar that we needed to make the film from a bank. And the advantage to doing this is several fold. That you're paying out less of a return because banks take less interest than an equity financier does. Um, you're maintaining more control of the film for the filmmaker and the producers of the film as opposed to, to the investors of the film, which we've never actually had a particularly, we've never had a bad experience with an investor causing problems for us. So it's sort of a false thing for us to be protecting it against, at least in our experience. But certainly there are horror stories of investors becoming problematic or studios becoming problematic in their involvement. Not our investors, though. We love our investors. <laughs> well, they've done a great job by us. And they've let us make our movies and, and we think we've done well by them. But yeah, so that's, that's the way we finance that film. Um, and we'll try to do that in any scenario where we can on any future films because it's um, got a lot of advantages in terms of uh, creative control and, and so also financial. When, when you bank, when you bankroll it like that, would you do you have to have the film bonded then? You do have to have the film bonded for a bank. Um, so we've only bought it's the only movie we've bonded out of the four movies that we made. Um, we tried to bond Margin Call, but. There was some crazy Kevin Spacey travel, and there was a volcano in Iceland at the time that was causing us all kinds of weird problems. So we weren't able, to, as weird as it sounds, that's why we weren't able to bond the movie. So it was an know. ash cloud. It was an ash cloud over, over England and Iceland. Um, but yeah, so we bonded one movie. That's the only movie we bonded, and now we're moving towards um, at least one of the movies that we're going to try and make this year will be, will be bonded, and maybe more than one. That's great, guys. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jesse, for being Jesse Eichmann. <laughs> Corey, <laughs> Neil, and uh, and Sarah Quintos before the door. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.